Hey, I want to continue my sermon series, Liberty in Jesus. And this is a sermon series that we uh, begun a few weeks back, uh, going through the book of Galatians. Galatians being a letter written by Paul to the churches in Galatia. So there was about four churches there in that region that he was writing this letter to. And it was in a response to some situations and some challenges that these churches were facing. And we know that the scriptures are timeless, that they... Uh, they don't have an expiration date, that they are as relevant today for us as they were for those folks in the first century. So we're looking at Galatians as a way for God to speak his truth into our hearts so that we might be a church that is more beneficial to our community than even as individual Christians, Christians who are growing in our faith and growing in our joy and the freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the title of my sermon today is The Fight for liberty. And as Americans, we all appreciate liberty. We appreciate freedom. We appreciate the ability to live freely. Well, in Christianity, it's a little bit different. However, there is great freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that sin, as the Bible speaks, is a slave master. Those who don't know Christ are slaves to sin, and they must obey their slave master. But those who come to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior through faith uh, by grace in his death, burial, and resurrection, are freed from that slave master called sin and are able to live freely in righteousness to their beloved Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the book of Galatians is so important not only to the freedom of the gospel, but the purity of the gospel. Paul's intent here in the letter of Galatians was to squash the fake gospel that was being proclaimed by a group of Jews known as the Judaizers. Uh, we need to remember that Paul had planted these churches that he's writing to at this point on his first missionary journey. And he loved these churches dearly. They had a special place in his heart. It was personal for Paul. When these churches struggled, he took it personally because he loved these people. And he put his uh, blood, sweat, and tears into planting these churches. And he loved these people. Uh, in the course of events, though, as Paul had planted that, those churches of Galatia, um, Paul had even, in the course of planting those churches, and you can find this in Acts chapter 14, he had even been stoned at one point and left for dead. I mean, he was willing to do whatever it took, even if it meant losing his life, to protect the churches of Galatia from the false teaching they were experiencing from the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were a group of people, they professed to be Christians. They weren't necessarily still practicing Judaism, the um, Old Testament religion, uh, solely. But what they were doing was they claimed Christianity, but then they brought in a bunch of rituals and beliefs from Old Testament Judaism. And they were teaching in the churches of Galatia that they must be circumcised in addition to trusting in Jesus. And that was how that they could be saved. And Paul had a big problem with that because it went against the purity of the gospel. So as Paul begins to engage in this fight for liberty and freedom, we know that anytime you add to the gospel of Jesus, what you're really adding to is the yoke of bondage uh, that goes with trying to be good enough to get into heaven. And we know the Bible teaches us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that on my best day, the Bible says, my righteousness is as filthy rags. I can't be good enough. And as these people who were legalists, these people who were uh, trying to put an extra weight on the shoulders of the Christians in the churches of Galatia, 
Paul had an issue because he said, listen, human beings cannot carry that kind of weight. See, Jesus bore the weight of my sin and your sin upon the cross. And when he paid the price for our sin, he paid it in full, completely, with nothing left. So anytime we as human beings begin to believe a gospel that says Jesus plus anything, we're really adding bondage and legalism to the purity of the gospel, therefore making it a false gospel. And this is why Paul was so offended. So if you will, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. Now I'll give you just a quick second to get to your place as we go verse by verse through this letter written by Paul to the churches of Galatia. So beginning in verse 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1 of Galatians, the Bible says this, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. In order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. He goes on to say there in verse 6, Now from those recognized as important, what they once were makes no difference to me because God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John... Those recognized as pillars acknowledged the grace that had been given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we uh, contemplate your word, I pray that your spirit would speak to us, that you would reveal the truth, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to receive your word. Lord, as we think about the purity of the gospel and the necessity for us to fight for the liberty that we have in you, Jesus, to fight against false teaching that would seem to undermine the purity of the grace of the gospel, the fact that we receive salvation through you, Jesus, nothing of ourselves, completely unmerited. Lord, in the moment we lose that, we understand that we are now talking about a different gospel. And Lord, that is not what the scriptures teach. We know the scriptures teach... For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. And Lord, we are thankful that it is indeed through faith, by grace, and that it is a gift that you have given us. We know that the meaning of a gift is receiving something from someone, and that person that gives the gift expects nothing in return. Lord, we know that is what salvation is today, that it is purely a free gift that you have given, that you have paid for, and that you have provided. So today, Lord, as we seek to retain the purity of the gospel, help us to be freedom fighters, fighters for liberty, and help us, Lord, to always preach a pure and a true gospel. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So my question for you this morning is this, how important would you say it is to fight for truth? Have you ever considered, really, have you ever considered what harm can come from the indoctrination of a false religion? You know, we live in a day and age where even our news uh, outlets, our media outlets, our newspapers, um, the stuff that we see on social media, we can't really believe everything we hear. We can't really take it at face value because there is so many agendas in our world today. There are so many people who are promoting false information, who are promoting uh, information that is biased, that it's very difficult for us in this day and age to really be able to go through all the information and really be able to pick out what is true and what is false. Well, in our faith and in Christianity, it's even more important because we're not just necessarily talking about a political agenda, but we're talking about eternity. We're talking about things of spiritual significance. And when we think about the truth, we understand that the Bible is truth, that the Bible is objective truth and unchanging, timeless truth uh, from the very mind, the very mouth, the very heart of God. And we can look at the Bible, we can read the Bible, we can study the Bible, and then we can use it as our comparison for what is true and what is false. As a Bible-believing Christian, I can honestly say that if my life is not lining up with the Scripture, that it is my duty and my obligation to realign my life, to adjust my life. If there's things in my life that are contrary to God's word, it is uh, imperative on me to remove those things with the power of the Holy Spirit so that I can better be aligned with the word of God. See, Christianity is not a self-centric faith. It's not about uh, necessarily what I like. It's not about my uh, emotions. It's not about my desires and my passions, but it's about the passions and the desires of our God who is in heaven. And those who know Christ and who are in step with Christ, Jesus passes along his desires to us so that we then no longer are looking through a self-centered lens at what the world looks like. We are no longer trying to make God's truth fit our truth, but we are making our truth fit his truth. We are making his truth our truth. And we are understanding that regardless of how we feel on a particular day, regardless of the circumstances of our life, those don't dictate truth. What dictates truth is what the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God of the universe, has deemed true. And if he who is qualified, who made all things, who made man in his image and woman in his image, if he says something is true, then he is qualified to determine truth. And it is my duty as his creature to obey and to agree. And as a Christian today, I agree with the truth in the word of God. Some of you might even remember what was known as the Nexium cult. It was led by a man named Keith Rainier, and it started back in the 90s. Rainier, who led this Nexium cult, was a narcissist, which means he was all about himself and gratifying himself and elevating himself to, to almost a godlike situation. He had convinced his followers that he was all-knowing and infallible. Because of his wicked teaching and indoctrination, he had even convinced several women to be branded, and I'm talking about a cattle brand, with his initials. And there's much more to that story. Unfortunately, the details are far too graphic to share in this setting that we're in today. But it is a real-world example of what happens when people profess 
a lie as truth. When people captivate the minds of other human beings with a false doctrine, with a doctrine that is contrary and opposed to the objective and absolute truth of the Word of God. And, and we saw that in the Nexium cult, we see that in Scientology, we see that in, in many other scenarios and situations where uh, one individual takes it upon themselves to deem what truth is in order to control a group of people. And it's a very dangerous thing. And as we look here at these churches in Galatia that Paul loves and that Paul is trying to steer in the right direction, we're understanding that those same kind of people are in that church. These Judaizers who are uh, propagating this faith of bondage is really what it was. They were saying, listen, you know what? Yeah, sure, you can have faith in Christ, and that's good, but your faith will only take you so far. The, the grace of Christ will only take you so far. You have to meet Christ in the middle, and you have to be circumcised. You have to obey some of the rituals of Old Testament Judaism, or else you're not going to heaven. And you can imagine what that would do to a believer as they are trying to live for Christ and they're trying to, to, to live in the grace of Christ and the freedom of his crucifixion and resurrection. And now they're having these influential people tell them that they've been wrong the whole time. That in reality, if they're not circumcised, then they're not going to heaven. It would have to have been a very discouraging, confusing moment in that church because a few took it upon themselves to teach and propagate a false gospel. So I want to tell you a little bit of the backstory here about verses 1 through 4 here in Galatians 2 that we just read. So here in Galatians 2, Paul is speaking about an event known as the Jerusalem Council. So if you hear kind of how he begins chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now understand that Jerusalem was not in Galatia. That was not a part of that region. So he had gone up to Jerusalem for a particular reason. He took Barnabas with him, it says in verse 1, and he also took Titus. He said, I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles. In other words, he was taking the message of the gospel that he had been preaching to the Gentiles to Jerusalem, where the apostles and the uh, Christian church leaders would have lived, and he, he made this presentation to them about the gospel that he had been preaching. It says he did that privately, though, to those recognized as leaders, because he wanted to make sure, given that he had not spoken with them about this in the past until this point, he wanted to make sure that they too uh, believed that the gospel he was preaching was truth from the very mouth of Christ. He said, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. He said, I wanted to make sure that I was not fighting against the church of Christ, but that indeed the true church of Christ agreed with what I had been teaching and preaching. In verse 3, he said, but not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. See, the Greeks by culture, would not have been circumcised people. That was a Jewish thing. That was what Jews did, not only religiously, but also um, for sanitation reasons. It was, a, it was a cultural, religious thing, but it was also for sanitation. And the Greeks were not known to be circumcised. So he said, with all this false teaching that's being said, Titus, who is a Greek, has not once been convicted by the Holy Spirit to be circumcised. But yet these Judaizers are teaching him that he must in order to go to heaven. There's a disconnect somewhere. In verse 4 he says, This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. So here we see that Paul is going to Jerusalem 
to engage in what is known as the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council, which you can also find at Acts 15, which is more of the, the narrative and the historical account of the Jerusalem Council, was when Paul and Barnabas and Titus went to Jerusalem and they had a debate among uh, church leaders. There were some of the Judaizers who were present. There were the pillars of the church, which would have been the Apostle Peter, uh, the Apostle James, the half-brother of Christ, and the Apostle John, uh, the one uh, whom Jesus loved. And they would have been there as well. So as Paul and Titus and Barnabas are in the Jerusalem Council, they're advocating for the pure gospel, the gospel that is by grace uh, through faith in Lord Jesus Christ. And as they're there, they're trying to hash this out. So that's really the backstory of, of why Paul is mentioning this in Galatians. Uh, the Jerusalem Council would have taken uh, place uh, several years before Paul wrote the book of Galatians. So what this tells me is, is that the Jerusalem Council had not completely fixed this problem of Judaizers preaching a false gospel and a gospel of bondage. So that's why Paul is bringing the Jerusalem Council back up again in this letter to the Galatian churches is because he's saying, listen, we've already settled this matter among the church leaders and even among the pillars of the church, the apostles who walked with Christ, and you are still preaching and teaching a false gospel. The churches are still falling into this same old trap that the Jerusalem Council addressed and fixed. So when we look at that, we think through. We can actually, if you will, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 15. I want to read just a portion of that uh, historical account about the Jerusalem Council and a little bit about what was going on there as Paul went to Jerusalem to begin to discuss these doctrinal issues. So in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. This is what they would say. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. And that was literally their message. You cannot be saved unless you do this work of circumcision. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. And that is the core reason why the Jerusalem council was had. So that's the backstory, really, to this uh, passage in Galatians chapter 2. So as we look at the backstory, if you're taking notes, write that down, the backstory, verses 1 through 4 in Galatians 2. The next thing that I want us to look at about this story and about what was going on here in Galatians 2 is the details. So if you're taking notes, number one, the backstory, number two, the details. And the details we find in verses 5 through 6. And what I mean by details is, is the how. Uh, what are the details of how Paul fought for liberty? What are the details of how Paul fought for a true and a pure gospel, a gospel that aligned with the revelation of Christ that he had received? Let me just kind of give you an example, though, before we look at those two verses. What if I told you you could buy your dream house? I'm serious, your dream house, whatever you want, whatever it looks like, regardless, there is no uh, limit on that. And you could buy it for the small monthly payment of $800. Now, there are a lot of people who would say, man, let's do it right now. Let's, let's sign the papers, let, let's, let's, let's do the work, and let, let's, let's get it. We'll, we'll do that. We'll do that. At face value, you know, you would say, that's awesome. Let's do it. But with a statement like that, a wise person would ask about the details. And that's really what we're talking about here, the details. You know, it'd be wise to ask questions like, what's the interest rate? 
What is the term of the loan? In other words, how long am I going to have to make these payments? You know, if you didn't stop and ask about the details, you sign the dotted line, do you realize the interest rate could be 20% with a loan term of 85 years? Your children may have to pay if they want to receive that home as an inheritance because you may not live 85 more years. Um, Most people don't live 85 years, period, much less 85 more years. So do you think the details might be important? I do indeed. You know, in the same way we see Paul fighting for liberty, fighting for the purity of the gospel, as he goes to this Jerusalem council and he begins to engage in this debate, you know, we might would look at Paul's fighting against the gospel if we just left it at that and didn't ask the details. And we might think that he took a sword up there and started chopping people's heads off. Or we might even think that he decided to take the Judaizers to court and sue them for defamation of character. By looking at the details, though, we see that Paul's approach is an approach that we too should use when we're fighting against false doctrines. So let's go ahead and look at those two verses there. Beginning in verse 5 of Galatians 2, the Bible says this, But we did not give up, talking about when they were at the council, when they were engaged in the debate, we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment. You hear that? They did not even agree or submit or give these Judaizers even the vaguest of ideas that they were agreeing with them. They said this, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. And he's talking to those churches in Galatia. He said, when we were at that Jerusalem council, not even for a moment did we back down. Not even for a moment did we agree with the Judaizers. And we did all of this in order to preserve the truth and the purity of the gospel for you. Have you ever thought about the next generation? Have you ever thought about your children or your grandchildren, your future children, if you don't have any children? Those of you who can't have children, have you ever thought about your nieces and nephews? Have you ever thought about that next generation and what the church will look like? Will the church still be relevant? Will the church still be powerful and active? And more importantly, will the gospel still be pure? There's only one gospel that can save a lost and a dying soul. And it is not the gospel of circumcision. It is not the gospel of prosperity. It is not the gospel of self-truth and self-belief. It's the truth of the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he substituted, he himself with his own body became a substitute on the cross for me and you. In other words, he literally, not figuratively, not symbolically, he literally took our place on the cross. He literally bore my sin and your sin. He literally paid it all. And not only did he pay the price, but he defeated death, hell, and the grave, sealed the deal, wrote it in stone by rising from the dead and sitting at the right hand of God. The Bible doesn't say because you're good and because Jesus died and rose again, you can be saved. The Bible says that Jesus paid it in full. What did Jesus say after he had been crucified? It is finished. The work of redemption is finished. Not, all right, Ben, all right, Johnny, all right, Susie, I did half of it for you. Now I want you to do the other half. No, he never said that. He said, I did it all. I paid it in full. He paid our sin debt. He bore our sins on the cross and became sin for us. That's the truth of the gospel. Here we see Paul contesting 
this false teaching in two different ways. And I believe that we today should mimic Paul in contesting the lies of false doctrine. In verse 5, I just told you, he did not yield in subjection to them. I believe Paul was probably respectful to them. I believe Paul didn't call any names or use any profanity. But I also believe he had a backbone in that day in Jerusalem Council. And I believe that he looked them square in the eye and he fought for liberty by teaching and proclaiming the truth, by using the word of God, by stating the fact that Jesus Christ did it all, that Jesus is sufficient. But secondly, we see the other tactic that Paul used in fighting for the truth, and that was in verse 6. He said, Now from those recognized as important, what they once were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. Here in verse 6, in arguing for the truth of the gospel, he did not show partiality to anyone, even those of high reputation. You know, that's the problem that we see a lot of times is someone will believe something or someone will advocate for some idea or truth because a prominent person believes it. Well, the Bible is true regardless of who believes it. I could deny the truth of the Bible, but guess what? My denial of the truth doesn't make it not truth. It's still truth. It's still objectively true no matter who denies it, no matter who says it's true or not. It is objectively true regardless. And Paul understood that. And even if Paul had gone to Jerusalem and he had said, uh, Peter had said, no, Paul, that's not quite right. You do have to be circumcised. I believe with all my heart, Paul still would have fought for the true and the pure gospel. He still would have shown no partiality to the opinions of others, although he wanted the, the backing and the influence of those church leaders. He did not solely rely on that to validate God's truth. He validated God's truth by the revelation of Christ that he had received. The Bible teaches us that Paul did not learn the gospel from the other apostles. Paul learned the gospel from Jesus Christ himself. As you can see there, it says that, that Paul received a revelation. He went up there because, in verse 2, I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel. Paul had the truth revealed to him by Christ himself. And then thirdly, the conclusion. What, what ended up taking place? What, were, what was the church? What was Paul? What was the council? The churches of Galatia? What were they able to leave with after this great debate and after Paul fought for liberty, the liberty and the, the purity of the gospel? Well, in verses 7 through 10, we really do see the conclusion. It says, On the contrary, they saw, talking about the pillars of the church, I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. In other words, Paul is saying the pillars of the church and the men, the leader, leaders of the church, affirmed that I had been called to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, that that people group and, and that group of people God had specifically called Paul to preach the gospel to in the same way that God had called Peter to preach the gospel to the Jews. It says at verse 8, Since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. In other words, there was no difference in their callings. Their callings were both of Christ and both about the gospel just to different people groups. Verse 9, when James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And then lastly, they asked only that we remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. 
Well, in Acts chapter 15, if you'll go ahead and turn back there as we look at that historical account of the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, there's some information there that I want us to read about the conclusion of this event. Uh, Beginning in even verse 13, it says this, uh, chapter 15, verse 13, after they stopped speaking, and this is talking about those in the council and those engaged in the debate, James responded. Now, the reason James would have responded, he was the half-brother of Christ. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was one of the elders of that church. So he would have probably been uh, an informal leader at this, or even a formal leader, but he would have been the one probably conducting and overseeing these debates and these discussions at the council. This is what James said after the council had finished. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this as it is written. And then he quotes some prophecies from the Old Testament. He says, Therefore, in my judgment in verse 19, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, we should not cast undue burdens on their shoulders, such as circumcision. Verse 20, but instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. Here, James is affirming what Paul said the whole time. Listen, to be a Christian does not necessitate additional works. In other words, to be saved, you don't have to do X, Y, and Z. To be saved, it's by grace, through faith, trusting in Jesus. Now, the works follow salvation because of the power of the Holy Spirit within you, but your good works do not and cannot and will not save you. And that's what Paul is fighting against here. In other words, circumcision does not save you any more than a man on the moon. Circumcision is irrelevant in salvation. Circumcision has no effect on salvation. Salvation is solely by grace through faith. Nothing else. Nothing added to or taken away. So when we think about that, the pillars certainly attested to the authenticity of Paul's message. Today, though, we also must attest to the authenticity of the purity of of the gospel. We must also fight for the liberty of the gospel. In verse 9, they see and hear the evidence of authentic conversion among the Gentiles. Did you hear what Paul was telling them in verse 9? Let's go back to Galatians 2 just quickly. And in verse 9, he says this, when James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, listen, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. In other words, they saw the fruit, they saw the results of an inner working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Paul and Barnabas and Titus. It was undeniable that God was at work in them, and it was undeniable that they indeed were preaching a true gospel that changes lives, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So number one, they authenticated and they saw that that pure gospel was being preached based upon the evidence of their conversion and also the conversion among the Gentiles. But secondly, if you go back to Acts chapter 15, beginning there in verses 13, as I said before, James goes to the scriptures. James says, listen, Paul indeed 
has been called to share this pure gospel, this true gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. And I'm going to give you some scripture to back it up. He begins in verse 16 by saying this, After these things I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So did you hear that? Did you hear the fact that James is not just making this uh, claim, he's not just making a judgment on whether or not Paul is preaching the pure gospel and whether or not Paul has been called to teach the gospel to the Gentiles, but he's going to the scriptures and he's saying, let's see what God's word has to say. Is the fact that Gentiles are now being saved, does that align with the word of God somehow? And as he begins to look at these prophecies from the Old Testament, he says, indeed, the word of God prophesied of a time when Gentiles would be saved, when all of humanity could seek the Lord, not just the Jews. So here they are using the word of God to authenticate. They're using the fruit of those preaching this gospel to authenticate. And I believe those are both great concluding points that we should use as well. When you're listening to someone tell you uh, something about uh, God or something about eternity or something about salvation, but yet their fruit, their life doesn't add up to what a Christian should look like. They're not bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You should question that and you should take a moment and stop. And you should be careful what you believe when they say it. But then secondly, another way to authenticate what people are teaching or talking about uh, when they're speaking of these things is go to the Word of God. And if what they're saying contradicts the Word, don't believe them. Because they are teaching a false doctrine that is dangerous. Every cult, every false religion began with a false doctrine. Every single one of them. We understand the pain that cults cause, the pain that false doctrines cause, and the great confusion among believers that false doctrine causes. That's why we as a church, we have a confession of faith. We have articles of faith where we have certain doctrines within our church that are non-negotiable. You know, one of those, just for instance, is the fact that Jesus is God. We are never going to negotiate that fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed God. He is fully God. He's not a human empowered by God. He is not uh, just some special teacher or prophet of old, but Jesus Christ is God. And there are many other doctrines that we stand on because they're taught in the Bible. So today, as we think about this uh, this debate that Paul had at this Jerusalem council. And as we think about uh, false teaching and false doctrines and people uh, teaching uh, lies as truth, it's our duty as Christians, just like Paul, to fight for liberty. To make sure that if you have a friend who's going to a church where they're saying, you, you have to do this, this, and this to get to heaven. You know, you have to... Uh, Girls can't wear makeup. You have to wear long skirts. Uh, men, you have to part your hair. Uh, you know, you have to do X, Y, Z. Men, you do not go to church without wearing a tie. And, you know, all this other stuff. My friends, they're adding unneeded burdens on the shoulders of people that the Bible does not teach. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith. It's nothing of ourselves. It is indeed a gift of God. And if the Bible says it, we must believe that indeed salvation is a gift of God. 
So today I want to encourage you with that. Not all, it's not something that you can't do. You know the gospel today if you've trusted in Christ. So stick to the gospel. And when you hear people going outside the lines, be like Paul. Be like Paul and say, listen, the truth is the truth whether you believe it or not. The word of God teaches it, and that is exactly what we're going to go by. Paul did not show partiality. Just because someone had influence did not mean that he gave them the right to speak lies. And Paul believed how important it was to keep the gospel true and pure. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I am thankful for a true gospel. I'm thankful for the fact that I don't have to guess what that is, but that it is plain and clear in your word. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Lord, I'm so thankful that you paid the price in full for me, that there's nothing left for me to do except by grace, through faith, trust you, Jesus. And today I know that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, not because of some act I've done or something someone's told me to do, but because I've trusted in your work on the cross that was paid in full the moment you died and were risen from the dead. So God, today I pray that this would lift undue burdens from the shoulders of the people of Pole Creek, that we would live in the freedom of the gospel, the freedom that we no longer have a slave master called sin, but we can live in the freedom of the righteousness of Christ because of Jesus. Today, we love you, Lord. We pray blessings on our church family, those who are traveling, those who are sick. God, we think about those, Lord, who are having different challenges as school begins to start back. Lord, we lift up our church to you today and pray that you'd bless them and give them joy as they live freely in your grace. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.